Hi, Sriram. Thank you so much for uh, joining. Uh, we, I mean, I initially planned this to be a video, but you know, it's fine. We can do an audio uh, recording. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Happy to be here. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you, uh, uh, so who do you think would be the next unicorn among Indian startups? <laughs> That's a two-hour conversation by themselves. Uh-huh. Just simply because of the amount of activity out there. Because the easiest way to think of it is every company right now is leaving. Every single one. So right, it is right, right. the fact that that also changes how I report and how I write. So if a source of mine tells me today that somebody is raising, that's almost not news anymore. So I need more details that you know who is coming in, what is the round size, what is the valuation, etc. Say two years back, if somebody just told me that there's this company, there's a round happening there, that itself would have been interesting. Today, companies are permanently raising. There are a bunch of companies today where, you know, there are three rounds happening in the same year. Like you raise in January, then you raise in June, and then you raise in October. I mean, do you think they're raising? I mean, so first of all, what what do they do with so much money? So that's my first question. Second is, uh, do you think there is, uh, do, you, do you think that they're raising too much? Is there, is, or is there a concept of raising too much? I don't know. Oh, very valid questions. I'll go for the second one first. Are they raising too much? In many cases, it definitely looks like it. Now, the problem is, it's very hard to tell these things sitting where we are right now. The investors, the entrepreneurs, the bankers involved in the deal are all people much smarter than me, and I'm sure they know what they're doing. The problem, however, is that there are always unintended consequences. So, if you just look at the history of venture capital or the history of internet funding, you know, excessively funded companies have a lot of side effects. Sometimes that's poor culture. Sometimes that's over-experimentation. Sometimes that's not being able to contain burn. So few companies will definitely see those problems simply because that's how it works out. It is impossible that, you know, irrespective of anything, that all companies will raise this much money and all of them will be absolutely unbelievable and, you know, be perfect in every way. That's just not going to happen. Coming back to your first mm-hmm. question on what do companies do with this money? That also raises the question, why are they raising this money? Today, one of the things that investors are saying is, irrespective of whether you feel like you want to raise money or not, go and raise because we don't know when the funding environment will change. Whether that's 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, at some point the tide will change. Raising money will be a bit harder. And at that point, you should be well capitalized and well set. So that's one reason why they're raising all this money. As for what they do with it, many of them are going and acquiring a lot. This level of m and in some sectors we haven't seen in India at all. Especially large-scale MA. The kind that a Baidu's is doing, the kind to some extent an Unacademy is doing, you'll see it more in e-commerce. So buyouts is one big part of where all this money is going. The second thing that happens is the moment this much money comes in, again there are a lot of second order effects. So today people are also spending a lot of money hiring tech talent. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing that's happening. There is so much, you know, what people say is that tech talent is very scarcely available. And therefore, the good, high-quality engineers are able to, you know, draw ridiculous salaries. And that's also you, happening because there's this funding boom. You said, uh, you know, I'm, okay, anyways. Um, so, so what is your day-to-day, I mean, what does your day-to-day life look like? I mean, um, I mean, what do you do on a daily basis, like, in a sense? Well, there are largely, say, three aspects to what I do. There's reading, there's reporting, and there's writing. All three which also feed each other and help each other. Reading is generally staying, you know, in touch with what's happening. 
whether that's what money control rights what other publications right or people abroad right books that are published all of that not only on startups and tech but in no broader business and culture in general because you also need to you know stay interconnected to events to be able to link it later if you are very siloed in what you read you know that's reflected in your writing your writing often won't have that kind of depth the second and arguably most important part is reporting reporting is essentially talking to people where because mm-hmm. of our startups that generally entrepreneurs investors bankers lawyers employees at companies you know pretty much any stakeholder in this ecosystem anybody who is interesting to talk to talking to those people figuring out trends figuring out news and the third of course is writing where whatever is the story i have to write getting down writing that you know structuring a story seeing who are the voices to include what are the perspectives to include right right um uh, oh my god i had a question in mind and i've completely okay uh, so so i understand you 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 know part of you part uh, you know you do your reading then you do your reporting so how do you go about uh, you know choosing your projects i i you know uh, we'll touch upon you did uh, one piece that i read of what you written was uh, about kunal sir and then you know you do some big book, book uh-huh. reviews yeah you do some mm-hmm. book reviews as well uh, so how do you go about uh, you know selecting your projects do you select them do you have that freedom to select this, these projects or you know is it handed over uh, you know is there a large scale you know vision by money control that you know and in this week we have to do x amount of stories about x topics and you know shri ram you got to do this for this week how how what's the process there it's a combination of the two and the word you use project is an interesting one it's a word we don't usually use because a project is generally a long term thing journalists uh-huh. don't usually don't have the luxury of such deadlines of course with some stories i like to take that kind of time like for the konacha profile for example i did take a couple of weeks to report that so you could maybe call that a project but otherwise sometimes the turnaround times on these things are a little shorter on how we decide it is a combination of the two we are figuring out what's happening in the industry overall what are the things that all of us as a team are hearing from our sources you know we have edit meetings where we decide you know this is what our priority should be these are the things we should be looking at there's a lot of back and forth it's it's not a very structured process in the sense that there's these three things to look at and there's only these three things to look at but i think that makes a very poor journalist so you have to be very open to you know whatever is happening out there and be reactive you have to react very quickly at the same time there are also original story ideas that i am pursuing so i mm-hmm. i'm giving an example as a percentage it's not exactly this percentage but is 50% of what i do is stuff that we discuss as a team that all of us are working on and then there's 50% that are just stuff that i'm working on story ideas that i have had based on my reporting and my reading you know where i feel like okay this is an angle nobody's looked at Like the Kunasha thing, for example, you know, it's an idea that you know my colleague Chandra had, and then I got very excited by it, and then we discussed it a couple of weeks back, and then we didn't talk anything about it at all, and then I just went to her after it was mostly done, saying, you know, this is what I've got, this is what I've gathered. Now, you know, let's see how to go about it. So it's a combination mm-hmm. of what's going on out there, and you know, our own internal priorities. So when you do these projects, I mean, obviously you get, I mean. You, obviously the multiple uh, you know multiple factors of how a story gets selected are there times when uh, or maybe you can talk a little bit I, i'm sure there are times when you pick up a story and you know it's very into you know it seems very enthusiastic on the outset but then you dig a little deeper and you know there's probably nothing there um, or is it not the case for you where you know every story you select probably you know there is something to report there um, how does that work i mean 
I mean, that's a great question. It happens all the time. Whether something that I get very excited by by one particular piece of information, it seems very promising. But then you dig deeper and you either realize that that's all there is to it. There is no bigger story there, nothing that I had any such. Or in fact, that what I had was incorrect. Where mm-hmm. also even I am listening to different versions of events from different people, and it's my job to verify. You know who's being honest, who's and some of them, some of the people I speak to, it's not that they're intentionally lying. It's just that they are sometimes one degree attached from detached from the actual event, which is why they will have a slightly filtered version of what's happened. Now filtration, one level after another, one level after another, you know, becomes misleading. So that's something I have to be very careful of. But yeah, it happens very often that I'm pursuing a story and then I report and I realize that you know there's not that much here. The flip side of that is sometimes there are very obvious things out there which everybody is looking at and everybody misses out. Because you feel like that's all there is to it. There will be a company that you think everybody knows and you think you know, but in fact, none of you know anything about it. That what's actually happening there is totally different. Right. I mean, also one more thing is from the, do the sources do you think have? I mean, obviously you write for a major publication. Do they? Do, do you also have to filter that in the sense that they also might have you know some vested interest in uh, you know pub, maybe getting published or you know being in the you know, being uh, in the in the public eye, does that also play a factor? Oh, for sure. So there's two three ways of thinking about this. One is, you know, when you say being in the public eye, those are the people I speak to on the record. So either say somebody I interview or somebody I take a quote from. For those people, yes, there is that to consider. But a lot of the sources I speak to are off the record or on background, where nobody else knows that I'm talking to them. And certainly, any information that I publish on what they said will never be attributed to them, and that's why they speak to me because they want that anonymity. But even in those cases, yes, I do have to examine their agenda. Where if somebody is giving me some information about a rival company, I have to see whether this guy is telling me, you know, because he is biased or because he wants to, you know, he doesn't like that company that much. Sometimes it, what also happens is that you can see their agenda, and you know that they have an agenda, and it's still fine because what they're telling you is the truth. So, say right, right. one company's founder will tell me about, for example, you know, a corporate governance breach at his opposite company, at his rival. Now, he may know that, yeah, you know, if this story gets published, I will benefit from it. But even then, what he may be saying is the truth. So, right, which means right, right. I can still use that information. I have to verify it and be careful and write to the company and you know, be very fair and accurate in my reportage. But I can certainly use the information, even if it's coming from a rival or somebody who may have a bias. I just have to filter out any bias in my reporting and writing. That's you know my duty. So, um, with all the information, I mean, you talk to so many people, and you know, you're you're, you're you're always given the stream of information, and sometimes I think it's privileged information that a lot of people do not have. I mean, you're the one disseminating that information in the first place. Correct. So, uh, are you also an active player in the investing game? Or, I mean, also one more thing is, I was going through your, uh, I don't know if it's called bibliography. I mean, I was going through your list of articles, mm-hmm. and you know, one in one in four article, one in the one in fourth article is, you know, how this company is getting funded, hundred million dollars, thirty million dollars, <laughs> twenty million. And I was like, oh my god, because I'm not a, I'm not a huge follower of business news, mm-hmm. and I, I was especially Indian business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was going through that, and I'm like, oh my god. Uh, you should be living in perpetual FOMO, uh, you know. Of uh, so, do you uh, not? Maybe you can, maybe you can have a personal touch. But also in general, do you think reporters um, 
uh, are they also reporting but also investing and you know uh, how does that work how does that uh, uh, you know that yin and yang or that dance work there no for me sort of objectivity and independence is very important so there is no way i can consider becoming an investor because the moment i become a direct stakeholder i mean i lose objectivity so when i'm looking at everything from an investor's lens and from where i make money and that goes against the you know fundamental thing of journalism and reporting which is about being independent and unbiased today my stories can hold up because i can tell you convincingly that every single thing i've written i've never written it with with an agenda i don't gain personally from it nobody else gains personally from it i have written this because i think these are factual and these are things that my readers will be interested in what i do is from a hypothetical standpoint i put myself in a founder shoes or an investor shoes because that helps me think so if i'm profiling a founder or profiling an investor and i've heard so many different things about him at some point i think okay if i was this founder how would i think now that's just a hypothetical exercise that helps me understand the guy a little better from time to time and sometimes when i meet people i also double check that with them where i would tell this founder you know if i was in your place this is how i would have thought about it is this how you think about it but that just helps me validate my thinking and helps me see if i go in the right direction but except that no i would certainly not consider myself a stakeholder in that sense right and uh, if i have to then you might as well just you know become a vc or founder yourself then don't be a journalist or don't call yourself a journalist right 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 um so you've done so many stories i was uh, again going back on the i was going through your you know list of stories uh, the pages were, were never ending actually um so <laughs> you've done so many stories and uh, so i is there a is there a favorite story that you've done which uh, you know you really felt um you know this wow this is an amazing story plus maybe you could you could also shed some light on one was a story maybe uh, or a profile or a story whatever and the other maybe you know you've done a lot of book reviews i think uh, at least two of them which i saw was i think the recent one the contrarian uh, mm. peter thiel biography yeah. uh, and also a little later i think a little earlier than that was the amazon unbound correct um, so i mean i'm only aware of those two that you've done maybe you've mm-hmm. done a few more which for you correct. were more interesting maybe mm-hmm. you can talk a little bit about that also about the book reviews that actually started almost accidentally where after i joined money control my editor binoy was saying that except for reporting you can do other stuff also and he just suggested book reviews as a thing now i am a huge bibliophile and i mean reading is pretty much all i do so the moment he said that i jumped on it i have to give him credit for suggesting that idea so which is why most of the startup tech books that come out i like reviewing them i would review other books also but i feel like this is my so called area of expertise so let me stick to that i don't want to go around giving commentary on random things so uh, my favorite story among the ones i have done it's hard to pick because i try to stay a little detached from you know stuff that i do like you feel very close to your work you know while while you're working on it after it's published it's always you know on to the next story but from recent times i done one piece on vc analysts about how analysts at vc firms work what are their you know challenges just how, what are those workplaces like that's something that i enjoyed working on a lot because it's something that's been around for a while but something that nobody looked at where generally when you look at vc firm this the partners who are glorified and who are in the press and who are quoted and who win awards nobody looks at analysts from a media standpoint you know despite mm-hmm. the fact that they are often the ones who do all the work and who do almost the same work that partners do whether it be sourcing deals whether it be talking to people whether it be diligence analysts are involved all the way through so looking at that was you know something i found quite interesting 
some interviews are a lot of fun too so for example i had interviewed ashish mohapatra of the b2b unicorn of business it's good to do interviews where the person you're speaking to is also open and honest you know who's not trying to just give a bite or give a certain quote or you know portray a certain agenda he was pretty free wheeling and open in the conversation that's something that i enjoy i got a lot of good feedback for that also because my readers also want the same thing they also know when somebody is saying something that's a canned quote where he's saying the same thing to four other people and something that's absolutely standardized and doesn't have too much depth as opposed to something where you know the guy is speaking from his heart he's speaking about experience he's speaking anecdotally that's a lot more fun for everyone mm-hmm. so um so you've been in the vc i mean you've been uh you know uh, publishing uh about vcs for so long um what do you make of this i mean uh, i was at least uh, you know i i consider myself as an outsider i mean i i have almost you know very little knowledge about you know indian ecosystem indian startup ecosystem uh, and you know when i was just going through all these apparently more than 25 billion dollars were invested uh, up until september not even october around this yeah 25 billion dollars were invested um there are more than 30 uh, unit i think 31 unicorns only in india i think it's i think the number of unicorns that we have in this year uh is more than all the previous has combined combined yeah i was looking yeah so um when you look at uh, when you look at this like um uh, what i mean how do you how do you think about this i mean this year in particular has been slightly crazy and i mean now partly because you know due to the pandemic there was increasing internet adoption and because of that companies were able to grow faster and investors got excited but also because interest rates in the us have been lowered so there's been a trillion of dollars pumped into the economy and that's gone into other countries so a lot of the money that's coming in is also because you know money finds its way to emerging markets so that's mm-hmm. the reason why so much of this money is coming in so in that sense it's great for the ecosystem there are lots of jobs being created lots of interesting companies being funded in some ways you know a great time to be an entrepreneur only that i would think of full extent of this funding boom and its impact in a 360 degree sense i don't think we'll be able to see that today you'll be able to see some of that only a year year and a half from now where you see you know to your earlier question on where has all this money gone what are the impacts are there companies who spent it very badly are there companies who raised so much money and still don't have enough to show for it and that kind of thing but overall it's certainly a great place I mean, especially compared to 10 15 years back where the most important thing is companies are going public so the billion dollars that investors have invested this they're seeing it just finally that is something that gives everybody a lot of relief because for money that you've been pumping in it's been you know one way traffic so far so finally seeing a lot of it come out and actually yield returns to investors right right um do you have any thoughts on crypto i mean um there is a lot of uh, i mean there's a lot of interest in crypto recently um do you ha- i mean do you think about that is there interest in uh, crypto in india um well, there is tremendous interest in crypto in india the only question is where is it going to end up there is tremendous interest just as evidenced by the numbers that the exchanges throw up in terms of the number of users they have and how quickly they've grown and because of which how much money they've raised and how the valuations are sitting at the question the only question perhaps from my point 
from my standpoint is regulation until crypto is regulated it's a very risky asset class for anyone and the quality of crypto users in india is very low and this is what i hear from the exchanges a lot of the people are basically it's like betting and gambling for them you know investing in bitcoin or ether mm. it's not that they're investing always because they understand cryptocurrency or they want to build a project or something of that sort that is still interesting and that can have some legitimacy but a lot of the people are 16 17 year olds who never even invested in mutual funds are setting up accounts in their parents names and then investing in crypto now that is what is dangerous and can lead to a lot of fraud and i have written about some of this where i wrote about these crypto whatsapp groups and including some of the frauds that happen there so that's a risk but otherwise yeah is crypto does you know pan out to be everything that everybody saying it is not just crypto but the whole blockchain ecosystem and web3 right, right. and all of that that will really fundamentally change how we think about the internet but only whether that will happen in india and how fast that will happen you know will be interesting to see i wanted to ask you uh, earlier but i i, I when you uh, so when you give me your when you give your answers i have like a you know i have like five to 10 questions but uh, i keep forgetting so uh, i just wanted to ask you when, when you were mentioning uh, you know the boom in funding do you see a rework do you see another rework happening at least in indian uh, you know do you see a company which you know bears resemblance to the hysteria when we work was around at least in the initial stages do you see any anything of that so maybe in india maybe uh, you know maybe in the west or you know or have we all learned our lessons and you know everybody's taking it easy it's a it's a great question and for a lot of the question that you've asked me i feel like i should just put you in touch with a bunch of founders and vcs you can ask them this and i'll step out of the way because these are questions for them and because these are questions i ask them all the time i watch my sources this all the time uh-huh. i'm still not sure but i feel like there is a high chance something of that sort will happen and i've written about some of this in parts where a lot of funding rounds are happening without due diligence happening in a lot of cases founders are selling their shares very early on there are a lot of governance issues employees are not being treated well you know companies raise a lot of money and then lay off a lot of people and then so a lot of those things do happen whether it will be at a vwork level or at a smaller level we'll have to see and also there is still a difference between say a poorly run company and a fraudulent company like mm-hmm. vwork is in the very gray area where vwork is still a real product it's not like theranos which was just like outright fake the problem with vwork was it was a real product but it was not a tech company it was a real estate company and on top of that you had a founder with all these you know crazy emotions and just had a very high opinion of himself and had the world's biggest and most important investors almost subservient to him if that sort of thing happens in india it's going to be very difficult for the entire ecosystem where a vc has spoke to just sudden last week was telling me this the biggest risk right now is if one of the large unicorns say turns out to be fraudulent because that okay. will send a chill through the entire ecosystem thinking so what the hell have we been investing in if there can be one like this there can be many right so we we'll uh, get to know a lot of those in the next 18 24 months and guessing we'll get to know um before i close i want to touch a little bit about government and then maybe a little bit about you and then we'll move on uh, we close this so um what do you think about uh, um 
I, I'm not sure if I'm if I'm getting the I'm, if I'm if I'm getting this right, but please correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I think um, you know we had cops showing up at Twitter headquarters recently, uh, and there is a lot of regulation. Uh, I think at least there is uh, some interest in regulation of you know social media companies in India. Mm-hmm. Um, what also uh, I I want to maybe you could comment a little bit upon uh, the government's role in uh, you know. Does the government interfere in in the freedom of press? Uh, is there any pressure felt by journalists? Um, um, yeah, I, I understand it's a broad question, but maybe you could uh, dissect it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is when you reference Twitter, I'll take that about you know the government's role in technology companies. The government certainly plays a role, and the trend that we see globally is that. you know regulations are changing technologies where technology comes up companies do what they want and regulations are formed afterward the challenge for regulators today is to be ahead of the game either you know anticipate what these companies are doing or if not anticipate at least react quickly enough like in the us today you know the government is calling for a breakup of facebook like almost 10 years after it after it acquired instagram This kind of antitrust discussion should ideally have happened way back, and today is very, very unlikely that a split like this would happen. In India, the problem is the same. So, I mean, regulators perhaps need to be just more proactive in, you know, spotting technology trends and spotting potential breaches, and you know how each stakeholder is affected. Because companies will do what companies need to do, and whatever they feel, you know, is important for them in terms of profit maximization or to please whatever stakeholder is important in that moment. and the other argument is that as a startup is growing some teething troubles are inevitable what a lot of people say is that if there are some issues here and there which ideally say the government should have intervened and taken care of something those issues will happen they can't prevent them because that's what growing up is like you know this is what founders and vcs say but even for that government does need to sort of be more proactive rather than you know years later realizing what's happening but it's a fine line because at the same time you can't clamp down on technology and clamp down on foreign investment as a whole there has to be a fine line drawn there are a lot of you know different perspectives after the china ban there were a whole lot of people who were happy because it gave rise to a lot of these indian apps and a lot of the indian apps were you know being threatened by chinese apps which are just bad actors that is one view the other is you know you have an open environment and you let the best company win that is the other view so then it just depends upon where your political ideology is mm-hmm. what was the I, other thing you asked yeah i was uh, i was referring to on the journalistic uh, freedom i mean i mean do, do journalists um, i mean do you guys in general uh, you know feel any kind of pressures um, i mean on not i personally don't i personally don't and i don't think anybody in my team has felt that pressure from the government either Maybe that's a function of the sector I write on. I don't write too much about policy and things on that front. But you should ideally ask this question to people who cover politics, people right, who right. directly engage with politicians, and you know people in that regard. They are the ones who will be able to answer that better. Right. Because right. it's just in terms of my work, I am a couple of degrees, if not more, you know, distance from politics. So even if there were political pressure, I would, I wouldn't feel it as of today. Hmm. right um so uh, you know 
are you working on something interesting that you'd like to share or you know anything in the future um, uh no man nothing i can share and i mean not because confidentiality or anything but simply because i don't know what will pan out at any point there are like 8 to 8 to 10 storyogs i'm playing around with a lot mm-hmm. of those depend upon how long it will take to execute you know how long it will take for me to get a certain bit of information sometimes you have say 90% of your reporting done and then you just get one detail that just makes your story and suddenly things fall into place so it it depends a lot on luck as well and it depends on how many more unicorns are created if there are more unicorns created i'm just busy with those companies and writing about them and interviewing them Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I can just so which is why even when say I talk to a source and he said okay when are you going to quote me for this, I'm like that depends on how many unicorns are created. If fewer unicorns are created this week, I'm going to get time to write and do my own thing. If I'm going to have five unicorns this week, then I'm sorry, we'll have to look at your thing next week. Right. Um. Sorry. I I I also wanted to know uh one more thing uh about uh what, do you have any thoughts on uh one is um. on on china maybe uh do you, i mean do you, you know think about that uh, on the china tech ecosystem uh, do you also think that uh, you know india is also kind of moving towards that uh, closed you know closed uh, uh, closed country type you know where you only let uh, the the citizens of the country build something for that country itself and you know keep mostly domestic um uh, Do you see that happening? Uh, what do you make of the China tech ecosystem, etc.? That's a very loaded question. See, at first glance, Ryan, it certainly looked that way. That when the ban on Chinese investments and then China, all those Chinese apps happened, that yes, we were clamping down and we wanted to encourage and make in India and all of that. At the same time, a we've got so much foreign capital from so many other countries. B Chinese funding has also come in its own way via debt, etc. So it's not that that has completely stopped. The thing to look at in the Chinese ecosystem, which was interesting to me, was the EdTech crackdown, where when they cracked down on all these tutoring companies, the government had an interesting point. The government's point was that, you know, we don't think you're helping students enough. You know, you're increasing fees, you're creating this whole formal ecosystem, and it is after-school classes from which students are not learning enough. so they have school then they have these classes and even then it's not like they're doing spectacularly well just because of you that's a question you could ask here as well and tuitions are a very intrinsic part of indian culture today where people kids go for tuitions from second third fourth standard you know up to even final year of engineering and all mm-hmm. so that is an interesting point so these edtech companies what is the role they play because education and business and it's not that they mutually exclusive you can certainly build a great education business where you're educating people you're doing the right thing and you're making profits but at what at what scale can you do that you know to what extent does education have to be product driven and not sales driven also depends on what you're solving for so far most of the edtech companies are solving distribution which is that not enough people are getting access to learning so we will give them access have this also quality yet i don't know mm-hmm. right mm. on that note sriram um i thank you so much for taking the time um of course happy to do it